You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In the weeks after our return from the jungle in February 2015, I and the other members of the expedition settled back into our everyday lives. The power of the experience stayed with us. I felt humbled and awed by the glimpse we'd had of a place completely outside the 21st century. We all shared a sense of relief, too, that we had emerged from the jungle unscathed. A few days after our return from Honduras, Woody sent everyone a broadcast email. It was part of his standard follow-up to any expedition he leads into the jungle, and it included this excerpt. All. If you find anything at all, feel slightly unwell, develop a slight fever that goes away, or any of your multitude of bites appear not to be healing, I would advise seeking medical advice as soon as possible, explaining where you have been, etc., Better safe than sorry. (laughs) Douglas Preston has worked as a writer and editor for the American Museum of Natural History and taught writing at Princeton University. He's written for The New Yorker, Natural History, National Geographic, Harper, Smithsonian, and The Atlantic. He's the author with Preston Child of the best-selling series of novels featuring FBI agent Pendergast, His new book is The Lost City of the Monkey God. Thank you for joining me, Douglas. Well, thank you. This is an amazing book. I I could not believe how often my jaw was dropping as I read one revelation after another. I thought the pacing of this book was amazing. Did you, how much did you leave on the floor? Well... You know, it's it's interesting. Structuring this story was difficult because there's so many parts to it. There's sort of this crazy history of the search for the lost city. And then there's the LIDAR expedition, which was super high technology, uh, kind of, you know, almost a science uh, story. And then there was the archaeological story of exploring the lost city. And then there's the medical story of what comes afterward. So I'm glad you feel that I successfully integrated all those uh, crazy, disparate stories. Well, I thought the the narrative and the storytelling arc and this, the skills with which you deployed that were wonderful, especially there's a certain kind of pacing that I'd say about every five pages in this book, every single reader's jaw is going to drop because of what you're talking about. And I guess we should start at the beginning this takes place in a place in Moskitia. Is that how you pronounce it? Moskitia. La Moskitia. Okay. Yes. Tell us where Moskitia is and why it is not about mosquitoes. Well, the uh, it is uh, a 20,000 square mile area uh, of Honduras and Nicaragua, which is, you know, some of the thickest jungle in the world, uh, cover just relentless swamps and then interior mountain ranges really rugged mountains, some of them over a mile high. And in these mountains, there are some isolated valleys that still remain unexplored. They're some of the last scientifically unexplored places on Earth. And 
That's where most of this action of this book takes place, in one of those valleys known only as Target One. Um, it has no other name. You know, uh, one of the things that has long been a belief of in archaeology is that human civilizations don't flourish in rainforests. And in anybody who, if you've ever read an ex expedition of a rainforest, and you've been in one, you can see why you can barely move through them. So I, I think it's really interesting to find these rumors of cities in force, which seem to be, you know, it's a, almost a global phenomenon. Well, yes, you know, that, that, that has been the standard idea that the, rainfor the rainforest environment is way too hostile for human beings, uh, at least to live in large numbers. Uh, it's not a good farming environment. The, the soils, the rainforest soils are too nutrient poor to support farming and so on and so forth. Well, it turns out that all that is absolutely false. The Mesquitia rainforest in prehistoric times, we now realize from this expedition and other work that's been done, was occupied by a very mysterious uh, large civilization, which doesn't even have a name, which existed along the Maya frontier. And they built great cities. They transformed the rainforest into a, a beautiful, almost Garden of Eden-like environment. And then they vanished five or 600 years ago very abruptly the rainforest then came back, and today it looks almost uninhabited. Now, there have been rumors of this white city and expeditions uh, for, for almost as long as there have been people exploring America. So talk about the where, who was the first person to get twigged to a rumor of a mysterious white city in well, Honduras? <laughs> well, it actually started in 1526 with a conquistador, Hernan Cortez, after he conquered Mexico, he went down the coastline of Central America and he was anchored in Trujillo Bay off the coast of Honduras and he wrote a famous letter to the Emperor Charles V. And in the letter he said that he'd received extremely reliable reports of a great uh, a civilization uh, in the interior of Honduras uh, which was as rich or richer than Mexico. Now, Mexico was very rich. I mean, Cortez had just sent back a huge fleet full of gold and, and treasure from Mexico, so that's a, quite a statement. But Cortez was never able to get into the interior, and he moved on and did other things. But the rumors of this great civilization persisted, and there were more stories of, from the early Spanish friars about you know this, the, this hidden civilization in the mountains. And these rumors seemed to grow and evolve until the opening of the 20th century when um, a number of expeditions actually started seeking this legendary land, which had actually become a legend called Ciudad Blanca, the White City, or the Lost City of the Monkey God. So all these, these stories sort of became confounded or confabulated into a single legend of a lost city. You know, you bring up so many great, colorful characters in this book. Frederick Mitchell Hedges, whose daughter allegedly discovered the Crystal Skull of Doom, one of the most famous archaeological hoaxes ever to be pulled off, or not pulled off, as the case may be. So talk about Frederick Mitchell Hedges. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. The, there were, and it, this is a history of the most amazing charlatans, 
con men <laughs> and uh, crazy adventurers. Uh, and one of them was this British fellow, you know, Mitchell Hedges, you know, quintessential British gentleman with a hyphenated last name and, you know, with a pipe, pipe in his mouth and a rugged, <laughs> handsome man and a complete con man. I mean, he so he he made all these claims that he discovered, as uh, as you mentioned, his daughter found the crystal skull of doom, which which in the 1970s was proven to be a fake. Um, so that that con lasted quite a long time. But he also claimed many other things, and he was chosen by the Museum of the American Indian to lead an expedition into Honduras looking for the White City or the Lost City of the Monkey God, and he didn't find it. But he came back out with stories about the lost cities in the jungle that just electrified people. And, you know, these were not actually crazy stories. A lot of great lost cities had been found in the jungles of Central America. Um, the great Maya cities had all come to light. And so it was not unreasonable to think that along the Maya frontier in these really rugged mountains that there would be other lost cities. So... So the Museum of the American Indian sent Mitchell Hedges in. He came back out. And finally, and they sent another expedition. And finally, they sent a third expedition into Honduras led by a gentleman named Theodore Mord. What a great character. He turns out to be as well. well. <laughs> that was something because Mord uh, disappeared in 1940. He disappeared into the, into the jungles of Mosquitia. He came back out five months later, and he cabled New York with the stunning news he had actually discovered the lost city of the monkey god. And when he returned to New York, there was a huge excitement over this. He was, you know, he was on the radio. He was everywhere in the newspapers, headlines in the New York Times. And, uh, but he wouldn't reveal the location of the city for fear of looting, mm -hmm. which is a reasonable fear. Um, and then he was going to go back there and excavate, but World War II broke out and he wasn't able to go back. And then following the war, he actually committed suicide without ever revealing the location of the city. And the only artifact, well, he brought out all these beautiful <laughs> artifacts, but it, it, the mystery, you know, people ever since have been looking for Mord's lost city of the monkey god. They've gone all over Mosquitia uh, trying to find it. And desperate people, they've uh, crazy people, all kinds of people. And it's been quite a saga. Well, I, I like, too, the place where he supposedly left his clue. Yes, his walking stick. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, this walking stick had carved in its sides all these mysterious directions like east 400, south 200, north 100, you know. And there were columns of these figures. So the moored... The, the people trying to find the lost city of the monkey god have been have been analyzing this this poor walking stick for decades, drawing maps straight. Were, now, was this stick were they directions up a river to the city? Were they the dimensions of the city? Were they what were they? And uh, well, um, the mystery has been solved. I don't want to spoil the book, but I will say that finally due to a crazy set of circumstances, I came into possession of Mord's journals, uh, which had never been uh, published before um, or even read. How did you find them? Well, they belonged to Mord's family who'd been jealously guarding them. A guy named David Mord, who was uh, the nephew of Theodore Mord, 
had these journals and he would, you know, once every couple of years, he'd Xerox a page and send it out and cause a lot of excitement. <laughs> but he claimed that the pages in which Mord had found the lost city were gone from the journals. The journal too, only one page survived, all the rest was gone, um, and it was probably destroyed uh, either by rats in the warehouse in Massachusetts where it was kept, or maybe Mord destroyed it, to, you know, on and on. The story went on and on. Well, then David Mord was arrested and convicted of a terrible crime and went to jail. And his wife, not, not having read the journals, um, sent them to the National Geographic magazine uh, because they asked for them. And I was doing a story for National Geographic, and I called the magazine and I said, can I see these journals? And they said, well, well, certainly we'll copy them for you, but, but we're not going to read them. They're 350 pages. It's not worth reading them. There's nothing of interest in them. Uh, we're we, we're going to send them back to the family. So they copied the journals, sent me the copies, and sent the journals back to the family without reading them themselves. Wow. Well, I, I know. I, I was surprised. But anyway, I thought, well, I'm going to read them. You know, it's hard reading explorers' journals. You know, it's crabbed handwriting. There's stains all over the pages. But it was interesting. These journals were kept by Mord and his partner together. You could, I could, I eventually was able to tell who made what entries in the journal, different handwriting. And I read the entire journal, 350 pages, and I was absolutely flabbergasted at what I read. So talk about how we get from those journals to Steve Elkins and Steve Morgan. Well, um, so the idea of this lost city just grew over the decades of the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. And in the 1990s, there was a, a guy named Steve Elkins who uh, heard about the, the, the legend of the White City and decided that he was going to find it and film the discovery. And I learned about this because I was doing a story about something else, and I was at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, talking to a guy named Ron Blum, who is the world's expert on remote sensing of the Earth from space. And he let slip, the scientist let slip, that he was working for a private party on a secret project looking for a lost city. Well, I jumped all over this. I said, what is, you know, you got to tell me more about it. Well, he refused to. It was, he signed non-disclosure agreements. But I finally got through to Steve Elkins, and it turns out that, yes, um, Steve had hired this guy and his team, paying them, you know, moonlighting, to uh, look, to analyze satellite imagery from space of the Mosquitia Mountains of Honduras looking for this lost city. And Blom and his team had actually identified a valley called Target One, in which he said there appeared to be unnatural features, curvilinear and rectilinear features, huge unnatural features, you know, thousands of feet large. And so Steve was very excited by this, and he decided to mount an expedition into this remote valley, which um, was about to leave in 1998 when Hurricane Mitch struck Honduras and absolutely flattened the country, destroyed it. 7,000 people were killed. It destroyed 70% of the roads. It absolutely wiped out the country and completely eliminated any chance that Steve would have of mounting an expedition into this very remote valley. I thought that the amazing number of complications that you encounter getting to where you eventually get to in this book 
the natural barriers and also <laughs> after after a revolution you have political barriers that are every bit as uh, forbidding as natural ones well that's right you know this area is really really dangerous uh, first of all uh, Honduras uh, at the time uh, had the highest murder rate in the world five times higher than the murder rate in Afghanistan for example it's a very dangerous country this area Mosquitia uh, is uh, controlled, all the surrounding towns are controlled by narco-traffickers and drug cartels. Um, something like 80% of the cocaine coming from South America into the United States is transshipped through Honduras, most of it through Mesquitia. You know, jungle airstrips and so forth and smuggling. and it's So it's very dangerous just to get into the jungle. And once you're in there, you're faced with the thickest, some of the thickest jungle in the world. Um, an, just an astonishing number of absolutely deadly venomous snakes, uh, animals, you know, uh, the uh, tropical disease, insects, uh, roaring torrents, uh, incredibly steep mountains, and uh, quick mud, w which can swallow a person alive. I mean, it's, the, the list of, of dangers goes on and on. I mean, a, an ex exploration team moving on the ground in the Mosquitia jungle in a 10-hour, a brutal 10-hour day, we'll be lucky to get two miles. That's really astonishing. And it's understandable, however, as I read your accounts of, of doing so. Um, one of the things I thought was that I just really loved in this book were the characters. You create so many great characters. I think probably my favorite character in this book is a man who you are allowed to quote because sadly he passed on. So tell us a little bit about Bruce Heineke. Oh, Bruce Heineke. Well, <laughs> when Steve originally started working in Honduras, he hired this guy as a fixer. And uh, so Bruce Heineke's big, fat guy with, uh, um, you know, uh, the, the, the uh, Hawaiian shirts, the gold chains, the diamond pinky rings, enormous wad of money in his pocket, you know, passing out, you know, bribes to everybody. Uh, chain smoker, drinks all day long. And uh, his profession in Honduras was, uh, he was a professional uh, drug smuggler for the Colombian cartel. He uh, was an archaeological looter, a gold prospector, and uh, also a killer, a murderer. And, you know, Steve would tell me stories about this guy, and I was dying to meet him. And finally, you know, I did meet him. And he would tell me one outrageous story after another, and he'd always jab his finger at me and say, don't you write down a word of that. He was very foul-mouthed. I can't use his language on the radio, but don't you write down a single word of that. And I'd say, finally, I said, Bruce, Bruce, like I, th these stories, when, when can I tell these stories? Isn't there some way I can tell these stories? He said, yeah, yeah, you can tell these stories when I'm dead. How about that? When I'm dead. Well, the guy passed away. <laughs> You know, so I was able to tell all these great stories I'd written down about his smuggling days and his his crazy adventures. Talk about uh, an explorer named Glassmeyer. Well, that, now this is a completely different guy. This this explorer, Sam Glassmeyer, was hired in 1959 to prospect in Mosquitia for gold. It was a major, you know, very expensive uh, expedition. And they sent him in an unknown firm, we don't know the name of the firm, sent him in to Mesquitia to look for gold. And 
he found gold. He made some really big gold strikes along the, uh, along the rivers going up into Mesquitia. But when he was there, he kept hearing stories about the White City. And when he was finished with his work, uh, you know, surveying the gold areas, he went off on his own. He took 10 of his most trusted men, including an old guy who said he knew where the city was, and he said, bring me to the lost city. So they did. And uh, it was an, a brutal journey, uh, an incredible journey. They went up one river after another after another. When they finally ran out of water, they, they hacked their way through the jungle for days and days. And, my God, they found a lost city. And Glassmeyer brought out a whole bunch of artifacts from this city and photographs, which I've seen. And uh, it's an incredible story. He even drew a hand-drawn map of where the city was. And this was something that Steve Elkins was really fascinated by. You know, was this the lost city of the monkey god or not? Um, it was definitely a lost city somewhere in the jungle. And he had Glassmeyer's map. And he was able to identify the valley that Glassmeyer was in. And he called that Target 4. So Steve was working up targets for where the lost city might be. He had T1, he had two others, T2 and T3, and then he called Glassmeyer's city T4. And now Sam is no longer with us, um, but uh, his, I've seen his artifacts. I, I know his daughter uh, well, and uh, there's no question in my mind that he found a, a tremendous archaeological site. It's, it's so amazing, the, the power of the, the many interlocking stories you tell in this book. And you do such a great job of weaving in their stories and the revelations. I mean, the revelations in this book are amazing. And I think one of the ultimate themes of this book is that as much as we might like to think we know everything about the Earth, we really, really don't. Well, we don't. In fact, it's, it's absolutely incredible to think that in the 21st century, a lost city could actually be discovered somewhere on Earth. But that's exactly what happened. And my book tells that story. And I mean, honestly, I didn't believe it until I actually saw the images on the computer screen and I just about had a heart attack. I mean, you did not have to be an archaeologist to see that there was a city under that jungle canopy. Uh, I, that's one of the aspects of the book I like is that early on you are really skeptical about it. You say, this is, there's nothing here. And, uh, and you are, uh, you know, uh, quite, you promise the guy you'll write something in, uh, what is it, National Geographic, but think, oh, I'm not going to do that until I really see something. Well, well, that's right. What happened was, so Steve, uh, so Steve, you know, found that, you know, these guys at JPL identified this valley, um, T1. And, but, and, they, and Steve's expedition never, you know, got off the ground because of the hurricane. So Steve pretty much gave up on the search for the White City until 2010, when he read an article about a new technology called LIDAR, light detection and ranging. And it absolutely fascinated him because this technology could actually map the ground the surface of the ground underneath the thickest jungle in the world. And it had been used to map the Maya city of Caracol. And it was incredible because the LIDAR mapping of Caracol revealed that 25 years of on-the-ground surveying by archaeologists had only found 10% of the city. 90% was revealed with only two weeks of flying a plane over the jungles around Caracol. It was an, it's a phenomenal technology. So Steve said, wow, 
you know, we can use this technology to fly over the Valley of T1 and really see what's underneath the jungle canopy. Well, I, I think, too, as you put it, this technology has the power to really change a lot of our perception of the Earth. They're going to fly this over the Amazon basin, you say, someday, and it's going to be a, a game changer. Well, it is. It's, it's an absolute. One, one archaeologist said this was the most important advance in archaeology since carbon-14 dating. I mean, to think, you, you can map in the desert, you can map to the ground within a centimeter resolution. And even in the, under the thickest jungle, you can see things to about a, a meter or three, three foot resolution. But anyway, so Steve called me up and he said, I've got the tools now to find the lost city. And would you cover it? I was actually working for the New Yorker magazine at the time. He said, would you cover it for the New Yorker magazine? Well, I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll cover it, sure. But I didn't call the New Yorker because I thought, he's not going to find anything. And it's going to be a terrible embarrassment if I pitch this story to the New Yorker and then have to go back to him and say, uh, well, he didn't find anything. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, you know, it could make a really funny story even if he doesn't find anything because there's so many crazy people who've tried to find this city and Steve is just the last one in a list of crazy people. And it, it might make a really funny story even if he doesn't find anything. So, so, I, so the expedition was launched in 2012. This was not a ground expedition. It was just an aerial survey. And Steve had picked out four target areas, actually dropped one. So there are three, target, three valleys in these really rugged mountains that had never apparently been scientifically explored. And I'll never forget, uh, it was, they flew the plane over the valley of T1 on May 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. It took three days to get the data. The data was uploaded to the, to the National Center for Airborne Laser Mapping, which is part of the University of Houston. It's, a, it's probably the premier center for airborne laser mapping in the world. They crunched the data there. They downloaded it back to Roatan Island, where we had our plane, because this, this LIDAR machine is, this million-dollar LIDAR machine is carried on a small plane. And I'll never forget that we had three very skeptical scientists who were doing this work rolling their eyes, you know, kind of laughing and snickering among each other about what a crazy idea this was. And the most skeptical scientist of all came bursting out of his bungalow that morning, waving his arms and yelling, there's something in the valley. There's something in the valley. And we, we were like, what? What do you see? He said, just come and take a look. So we all rushed into um, his, his uh, bungalow. And here's his laptop computer. And we looked, and you did not have to be an archaeologist to see pyramids, plazas, great earthworks. I mean, huge, uh, completely engineered human environment in this river valley uh, underneath this 150-foot jungle canopy. It was incredible. It's amazing to read about. And I think, too, one of the things you say is that even when you're on the ground, you can look at things and not, you, you might search this whole, go through this forest and not even be aware that what this stuff covered with leaves is, is human. Yeah, it's, it's right. You know, the, the jungle's so thick there that, you know, when we finally went in on a ground expedition in 2015, uh, it was a, I mean, it was a disappointment. I mean, you can, standing five feet 
from the base of this pyramid, you could not see it. You could not see it. You, you, all you saw was the fact that the ground suddenly rose abruptly in a kind of an unnatural way. I mean, standing in the middle of the plaza of this great city, surrounded by great earthworks, pyramid, mounds, you know, everything, you, all you could see were leaves. It, this jungle is so thick that if you were to put it down in Times Square and put yourself in the middle of it, you would not know that you were standing in the middle of a great city surrounded by tall buildings. It's a, a fact you convey very well. And I think, too, that once you got out there, too, you were really struck by the beauty. You, there was a couple of really beautiful passages where you write about uh, two creeks and rivers that you were on that you were really struck by. Just this kind of being in a pristine jungle makes a big difference, doesn't it? Well, it does. You know, once the city was discovered in 2012, then... You know, an archaeological site isn't really discovered till it's been ground truth. So Steve organized an expedition. Uh, you used a, a really interesting phrase, and so I wanted to explore that, uh, ground truth. So explain, you're about to explain what that is. Well, that, that is uh, ground truthing is a kind of an archaeological expression, which means that whatever you see remotely um, has to be ground truth. You have to go there. You have to have your feet on the ground. You have to survey it, map it look at what the artifacts are on the surface. It's not excavation, it's simply surveying. And uh, that's what we had to do. There was some, I must say, there was more than a little skepticism among some archaeologists about this discovery. I mean, even though they could see in the lighter imagery that there was something there, they were like, well, it's, it's you know, you have to go there on the ground. So we did. And it was very difficult to get in there. This is really, really remote. And we we f flew in um, in a helicopter. Uh, they, we had to drop soldiers who cleared, macheted and cleared a very small clearing. And this little small helicopter was able to put us down. And we made a primitive camp in the forest. And as, as, as you note, the, it was unbelievable. I've done a lot of backpacking in my life and I've been in a lot of wilderness areas. I've never been in a place like this that was so outside the 21st century. It was so remote that the animals appeared never to have seen people before. They wandered through camp, unafraid, unconcerned. We had, I had monkeys when I was setting up my hammock. I had monkeys in the tree above screeching at me and hanging from their tails, shaking branches and trying to drive me away. Um, we had jaguars that would prowl our tents at night, rumbling with this kind of purring noise that scared the heck out of us. And then at night also, the night animals would come out and we'd hear this blundering, crashing sounds of very large animals. We don't know what they were, but they were not dainty-footed at all. They were blundering and crashing and, and through, the, through the jungle all around us, and we couldn't see them. Now, you also had more than a few encounters with the deadliest snake on the planet. Tell us about the Ferdelance. Well, the Ferdelance is, uh, well, the first night... Um, we all had to wear snake gaiters, you know, snake protection against a snake bite. Uh, the Ferdelance is the deadliest snake in the New World. It kills more people than any other snake. And so that first night I was walking back from my hammock and my light, my flashlight, illuminated this gigantic Ferdelance, coiled up. I'd walked by him twice, coiled up in striking position, very aroused. His, his beady eyes fixed on me, his head kind of moving back and forth. 
So I backed up really quickly and in a very calm voice, although other people claim that I shouted, but I did not. I said, hey, you guys, there's a very big snake over here. So we had three uh, British ex-SAS jungle commando guys with us who were, the idea was to keep us alive in this jungle environment. And the leader said, oh my God, that's a fair to Lance. I'm going to move it. And I thought, this I've got to see. I mean, I was, but how is he going to move that snake? He cut this gigantic snake stick, about seven feet long with a fork at the end. So Woody pinned the snake and it unfurled in a fury of action. And that's when we saw how big it was. I mean, the snake was bigger than he was. And it was striking about, uh, you know, this way and that. Uh, its fangs were more than an inch long. A spraying venom that was just arcing through the air. It was terrifying. Well, he worked the, the fork up right uh, underneath the snake's head He had till he had the head pinned. And he grabbed the head with his hand. And he wrestled the snake to the ground. Meanwhile, the snake is, is, is twisting his head, trying to bite his hand and expelling venom all over the back of his hand. His skin was starting to bubble. Well, <laughs> That detail he right did, there. <laughs> it was, he didn't move the snake. He cut the snake's head off. And the, the headless snake started to crawl off into the jungle. <laughs> and the head continued snapping and spraying venom until he, he stabbed his knife through it to pin it to the ground. And then he got up and he washed his hands and he said he was very sorry he couldn't move the snake, but um, he had to wash the venom off his hands right away because he was concerned. And, and then he said, jokingly, British said, well, you know, they make quite good eating, but I have a better, a better uh, I have something much better for this snake than to eat it. And he, he took the head and he, he tied it to a tree in the middle of camp as a warning to everyone of the danger of poisonous snakes. <laughs> a warning that they needed to take uh, seriously because that wasn't the, the, the last time you guys saw snakes. No, we, we saw them every day. They were, they were everywhere in the forest. And a lot of times when you're walking, you know, they're slashing away through the forest with a machete. So you're walking through vegetation on the ground where you can't see where you're putting your feet. And we walked by fair to lances. We saw them crawling out uh, in the lost city when we made these stupendous discoveries of artifacts. There, there, were, there was a fair to lance hiding under a log right in the middle of this cache of artifacts. Very irritated fair to lance. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about stumbling onto some of these uh, scenes because there were things that were obviously human human-made that well, you saw. Well, it was incredible. When we first entered the city, we found, the first thing we found was this row of altar stones, almost completely buried. You could, you, you, you could hardly see them. There was, so the vines and the leaves were so thick. But these beautiful altar stones that were resting on tripods made out of quartz boulders, these smooth quartz boulders, quite, quite spectacular. And then on the second day, at the base of the pyramid, somebody shouted, hey, there's some weird stones over here, and we all came rushing in, and it was absolutely incredible. There were 52 beautiful stone sculptures, just the heads peeking above the ground, scattered in this area. And the first thing I saw was a jaguar head just erupting from the ground, a snarling jaguar, his teeth bared. And it was such a it was such a moment, you know, I, up to that point, it's sort of been theoretical, this lost city and 
people built this lost city. But when I saw that jaguar head, I realized, wow, you know, the people who built the city were, were confident. They were accomplished. They had a tremendous sense of artistic uh, achievement. Um, I mean, this was not some crude sculpture. This was beautiful. It had tremendous power to it. And it was really a, a, an emotional moment to see that. And then as all the other artifacts started taking shape in the gloom, we saw snakes and vultures and all kinds of things, jars, big stone jars that were left as offerings. It was quite something. I, I think that uh, the sense of antiquity that you convey here is is really amazing. There's a, a scene in this where you were looking for a temple and there are I think eight temples on top of it that you kind of have to go in on under the side. It was like something out of an H.P. Lovecraft novel. <laughs> yeah, the, well, the, the Maya uh, built their temples. You know, each new ruler would build a temple mm -hmm. uh, for himself, and it would be built on top of the previous temple. So you get this kind of like Russian doll sort of thing where you, there are like eight so I was talking about that, that that was at Copan where there are eight temples, mm -hmm. one on top of the other. And uh, they discovered the, the uh, tomb of the founder of Copan by going in on the side and digging underneath all these temples, finding the original one, finding the original staircase in it, digging their way up into the burial chamber. And there they found the, the founder of Copan, this absolutely gorgeous tomb. It was, you know... Maybe not quite like King Tut's tomb, but it's full of beautiful jade and jewelry and all kinds of things, along with the skeleton of, of the ruler of Copan. Well, in, in T1, I mean, and T3, these were like big cities. Uh, how, how big were these cities are? How many people do they think were living in these Well, places? it's hard to say. You know, the, the T1, thousands of people. Mm -hmm. um, the trouble is that even as we're speaking, only about 10% of the city has been explored. There's another 90%. There's whole sections of the city that human beings haven't entered yet. Um, so thousands of people in T1. T3, the second city that was discovered with this LIDAR survey, is three times larger than T1. T3 is, is the size of the core of Copan. Uh, but that city has not been explored yet. It's still sitting there in the jungle, slumbering away, waiting to reveal its secrets. Upon your return, uh, your 800-word article uh, for uh, post for the the National Geographic became their second most accessed post of all time. Yeah, the, it's sort of the idea that a lost city could be found really electrified people and interested in them. I think they got eight million uh, uh, views of the, that that are of that article. It's the second most popular article they ever put up on their website. The, the first most popular was a chipmunk that stole a GoPro camera and carried it up into a tree <laughs> that was running. So anyway, but, but so the lost city was number two to the chipmunk. I guess that says something about our civilization. <laughs> um, for as much as everybody in the world is interested about this in the city, including the, the archaeologists, not all the archaeologists were particularly happy about this. We talked about this a little bit before um, when you came back there were uh, some archaeologists that you had consulted before Joyce um, was one of them and and she these people were quite unhappy with what had happened well they they were they were um, you know it was 
The original discovery of this city was not made by archaeologists. Mm-hmm. It was made by LIDAR engineers and geoengineers, remote um, you know, people who, not archaeologists. And that, that was a big problem. They took great exception to the idea that this discovery, great archaeological discovery, was made by, pe- none of, by people, none of whom were an archaeologist. They didn't like that. Um, and, you know, they've been a little disgruntled ever since. But it's hard to deny the, the uh, in extraordinary nature of this discovery. I mean, it's, uh, it's you, know, you know, we went there, we've mapped the city, there are academic papers being published. In fact, there are now seven or eight archaeologists have actually been part of the team, as well as another 10 PhD scientists. So it's, it's been a very um, carefully and properly done scientific expedition, um, despite the fact that it was mounted by a filmmaker and a guy looking for the white city. But, um, but no, it's, it's, it's absolutely been impeccable, impeccably done from a scientific and an archaeological point of view. Well, I, I think one of the things that this book reflects is the changing nature of, of archaeology. It used to be about digging stuff up. With LIDAR, you need not do that. You can just let, you can understand what's there and maybe just let it stay there till we can figure out a way to look at it without disturbing it. Well, the, well, well, that's exactly right. More and more archaeology is being done by engineers and uh, technicians. Um, and it's just the, the way the world is changing. The, the old-fashioned, quote, dirt archaeologist who gets in there and digs something up and, and so forth is that's still an important part of archaeology, but then those objects you know, have to be analyzed using mass spectrometers, um, all kinds of sophisticated equipment. LIDAR uh, is, uh, can only be operated by very, very uh, sophisticated engineers um, and you know, also pilots. You know, it takes a plane. It's a million-dollar machine. It's very expensive. And so, yes, archaeology is changing a great deal. But it still needs, there's one component of archaeology that is still really necessary and absolutely not high-tech, at least electronically, and that's the storyteller, which is where you come in. And I think the way this story is woven together is it really knocks your head off with how strange stuff is. I mean, I won't say how, but Steve Forbes is involved. (laughs) And this is a really... Uh, uh, one of those uh, gobsmacking moments for me, <laughs> one of many in this book. And I think that the ability to, it's more than just knowing there's a city there. The ability to tell the stories of the people who find it, to evoke the wonder of this world that we don't know as well as we'd like to think, is that's a, a skill that is going to, I think, remain strictly in the human domain. Well, I, well, you're right, and thank you. Uh, it is, you know, there are great mysteries connected with this culture. They were right on the, along the Maya frontier, but they weren't Maya. Um, and there's this huge mystery as to why the city was abandoned. Mm-hmm. And the ar- excavation of, those, of that cache of artifacts, which actually ended up being 500, not 50, um, revealed what happened to the city, and it's absolutely tragic. Uh, it is almost horrifying, actually. Um, I don't want to spoil the book by saying what it is, but the book does discuss how archaeologists are able to tell what happened to the city simply by doing a, an excavation. Among the many things you face there, 
were snakes and also uh, sandflies. <laughs> Tell us about sandflies and their special gift. Well, the, uh, you know, the legends all talk about the lost city being cursed. And anyone who goes there will die. And when we were going into the valley, there were Hondurans with us who were joking about this legend because, of course, all, everyone in Honduras knows about it. And uh, it was, um, you know, legends are sometimes based in the truth. And we, we came back out, and we were all very relieved that no one had died, no one had been bitten by a snake, and no one had gotten sick. And our relief was premature. Um, the expedition, one by one, started to fall ill of a, an incurable and quite horrific tropical disease, including myself. And uh, it, was, it turns out that the valley and the ruins were a hot zone of great virulence. And uh, two-thirds of the expedition came down with this awful disease. Well, I think that uh, this, too, is it's a beautiful part of the story. The, the storytelling here is great because you come back, and you're relaxed, and everybody's happy. And then it's just this kind of like slow, creaking horror tension. Uh, it's like all of a sudden we're in the David Cronenberg movie. <laughs> well, it was it was something quite, you know, my brother uh, wrote The Hot Zone. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we have a sort of in our family, we like uh, to medical mysteries. <laughs> but And when I told my brother that I'd gotten this disease, his first thing was, oh, my God, that's so cool. Wait a minute. What am I saying? That's not cool. <laughs> but that's a really interesting disease. He knew all about it. And he was very excited. And and, you know, the, one th the nice thing about being a writer is that when bad things happen to you, at least you can write about them. And uh, now, I have to say, have, the first thing I thought when I saw this book was I thought, this is literally like the plot of Relic. And in fact, you, do, you were talking about the statue of a jaguar, which you refer to as a word jaguar in the book, which is also, uh, that's, again, that's, not to give any spoilers for Relic, but that's some somewhere around the, the side of that book. Sounds like there's a lot of plots for fiction. Do you think you'll be taking plots for fiction out of this book? Oh, you know, uh, Link, my writing partner, just read the book, and he said, Doug, oh, my, this is great. They're, they're like, we, we can pull two or three novels out of this story. It's, this is so great. But it's funny you should mention that thing about the Relic, because I actually hadn't thought about that before. But in fact, that... Jaguar, a were-jaguar, is like a werewolf, does depict a man, a shaman, in a spiritually transformed state as a jaguar. Um, and it turned out when they excavated that head, it was attached to a, a stool or like a seat of power, which the shaman would sit in, or the priest, and using hallucinogenic drugs probably, uh, would... would uh, go into a trance and, and put himself in touch with the spirit of the jaguar. So it's uh, not dissimilar from Relic. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things you mentioned uh, in the book is that you had a film crew along with you doing filming this. Will we be seeing a movie of this? Yes. In fact, uh, they're putting together a documentary film. It's going to be unbelievable. Um, one of the, the, the chief producer is uh, Bill Benenson, who uh, was one of the executive producers of Beasts, Beasts of No Nation. He's done 20 or 30 excellent documentary films, a wonderful filmmaker, and he's, he's putting this whole thing together. 
Well, I'm looking forward to it greatly. And I take it you and Link are working on more uh, Agent Pendergast. As a matter of fact, Link and I are working on a new Pendergast novel, and we are currently arguing about the title. So I can't tell you what the title is. (laughs) We do a lot of arguing, I'm afraid. It's like a bad marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Well, has, have any of those arguments uh, led us to a faithful adaptation of the Pendergrast uh, novels by, say, Showtime or HBO? Well, it, that's a good question. Galen Hurd, the uh, producer of, uh, you know, Aliens, and she, I mean, she's a terrific producer uh, of The Walking Dead and so forth, has purchased the Pendergast books as a television series, which is going to be called Pendergast. But that's as far as it's gotten. They're still working on the script, the story Bible, the whatever. And so uh, I can't say anything about it except that I have a lot of faith in Gail Ann Hurd. She's a terrific producer. So Well, yay. <laughs> that's great news. I've been speaking with Doug Preston. His new book is The Lost City of the Monkey God. It's a true story. Thank you for joining me, Doug. Oh, it's great to be here. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>